listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions, where the real philosophy gets discussed. Let's get everybody comfortable here, and I think we need to order a round of drinks. So, Rick, what are you having? I'm going to have a margarita. It's sunny outside, and oh, no. Well, yeah, I'm going to have another margarita. I think I had a margarita (laughs) earlier, but yeah, I'll I'll stick with my margarita. All right. So, got a rant? Got a rave for me? Well, my rant is related to that. I'm going to rant about margarita mix. Really, people, what the fuck? Is it that hard to squeeze a lime? Come on. Guilty. (laughs) And my rave this week is Agatha Christie. I've been reading some Agatha Christie and watching Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. And uh, I'm just really digging Agatha Christie these days. Nice, nice. All right, Lee, what you, what you having? What's your rant? What's your rave? So I'm going to have my yeesh, Fireball and Diet Coke. My rave this week is true crime miniseries. I do love true crime documentaries in general, but I've been really impressed with the way that Netflix and Hulu and Peacock, etc., the streaming services have been able to make these true crime miniseries that are so well crafted that even a six part or eight part series ends with a breathtaking cliffhanger every single time. So the most recent one that I've been watching is Sophie, which is about this French woman who was murdered in Ireland in the late 90s. And I think it's on Netflix. So definitely check it out. Love those true crime miniseries. My rant this week is yard work. I have to say that in my house, my partner does most of the yard work, but, you know, lawns are like... In the summertime, it's a lot of maintenance. It's a lot of work. And yeah, I'm not down with that. I was going to say that I reject the the imposition of having to have a manicured natural space. I think it's oppressive. I told my wife when we bought our house, I said, I'm not a yard guy. That's not going to happen. You know what? I also reject the imposition of that as a norm. And yet I love for my lawn to look good. And I, I sort of passive aggressively impose it on not only myself, but probably everyone else as well. So Charles, what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? Oh, I think I need a double dirty martini with the cream cheese. Is it cream cheese or the, what is it? Yes. The, blue the, cheese. The blue cheese in the olive. I really need that desperately right now because it's just been Quality. that kind of week. It's just been that kind of week. My rant is, I know we're all trying to move out of this pandemic space. and Everyone's on a bed of needles. The transition is difficult. But what I really need people to stop doing is going online on Twitter and giving these anecdotal stories about how vaccinations don't work. Delta mm-hmm. variant has got everybody a little freaked out. But what I don't need you telling me on Twitter is my cousin's mother's brother's cousin's sister's brother's husband's father, right, sat next to somebody. <laughs> Despite his double vaccination, he got sick and died. Source it. I need some actual substantiation. I need very real second and third sources on this because you with the off the cuff thing is scaring the hell out of me. So that's my rant. 
Yeah. What what happened to Big Joe doesn't stand in for everybody. It doesn't stand in for everybody. <laughs> I mean, damn. I mean, li- little little Joe on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I don't need that. I don't. I need to wake up at six in the morning and read my Twitter, and it, that's what I'm getting. So yeah. that's my rant. My rave is I have been listening to the incomparable Spinners <gasps> and their classic song Sadie. There's something about that song that just triggers all kinds of memories for me growing up in the 70s. And Felipe Wynn with that gorgeous vocal and probably the greatest line ever recorded in an R&B song. He's describing his mother's love and saying, if there's a heaven up above, I'm sure she's teaching angels how to love. You're Aww. done. Wow. You're absolutely That's done. So, so good. I'm just going to go ahead and give it up to the spinners and Sadie. Oh, Sadie. What are we talking about this week, Dr. Johnson? I am in the hot seat today, and today we are going to be talking about conspiracy theories. I think that, (laughs) yeah, I think that this is something that people like us, you know, philosophers, should be interested in. But also, I think it's something that everyone should really be interested in. It turns out that something like 50% of Americans believe in one or more disproven conspiracy theories. It is also true that conspiracy theories aren't any more widespread now than they have been in recorded history, but my feeling is that they are more widespread. And I think a lot of that has to do with QAnon. So I want us to talk about QAnon particularly, but also in general, like what exactly are conspiracy theories? What are the motivations for people to believe in conspiracy theories? What do they do? How do they function? What are their real harms? So yeah, today we're talking about conspiracy theories. So I know, Lee, you just said we're going to talk about QAnon. And so I don't really want to get right there right away. But one of the things that for me is interesting about QAnon is that I used to think that conspiracy theories, as strange as this will sound, was a way to make the world rational. That (laughs) that it was always easier to think that there was someone behind the scenes with a plan mucking our shit up. That's easier than like, bad things just happened to me, oh my God. Or even worse, it's my own fault. (laughs) But like, then the conspiracy has to have, in that case, a minimum amount of rationality to it. Whereas QAnon is like whack shit. It's unbelievably (laughs) crazy. I I mean, I agree on the surface that it's pretty whack, but I don't think that it's absent a kind of internal logic. It does exactly what you just said. It explains the cause of what might seem like random or suspicious or untrustworthy events. Now, given its explanation of those events is fantastical, but it's not, for example, saying there are fairies or there are aliens even. It's saying there is a cabal of blood-drinking, deep state, (laughs) democratic actors who are pedophiles and child sex traffickers. And it's fantastical, but not magical, right? It's not irrational. (laughs) What is that explaining? That's a good question. (laughs) Here's the thing. I, th- I think conspiracy theories work because there actually have been conspiracies in human history. It's so sure. true. There yeah, have been moments yeah. where you've had a shadowy group of people who've made these plans that could have the effect of altering the course of a state. I mean, think about the Julius Caesar. That was a conspiracy. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? So I mm-hmm. think there is something there. 
I would say the last 50, 60 years, certainly in American culture, as people began to see the cracks and the weaknesses and the double dealing of U.S. policy, domestically speaking and internationally speaking, I think that's done a great deal to erode people since that those in charge are actually on the up and up and, and earnestly interested in the welfare of the American citizen. So in light of that, that loss of faith, in light of the crisis of legitimacy, people are actually trying to write, as Rick said, I'm trying to make sense of this. I'm trying to get some explanations. And this helps me to create an order that I can at least navigate and confront and, and change if need be. So do you think that the primary motivation of conspiracy theories is just to, or the motivation for believing in conspiracy theories, is just to explain unexplained events? Um, I think yes. And I also think that a primary motivation is how do we gain a sense of empowerment? How do we stop feeling helpless? How do we stop feeling weak? How do we stop feeling like the society or the world is out of our control? Because now I'm a truth teller. Now I'm somebody who has an understanding. Now I'm someone who has an insight. And now based on that insight, I can act, right? I can change. I see what's going on. I, I'm not being fooled anymore. Or even one step before that, I might not be able to act, but now I know why. Right. And yeah, so right. yeah. rather than just feel like, oh, crap, there, there, what I, there's nothing I can do. Now I know why. It's because Hillary Clinton's drinking baby blood all over the place. <laughs> and that's why my life sucks. <laughs> now, having said that, the problem <laughs> is for something that's trying to provide order, the complete and total illogic of QAnon specifically is really the problem. Because you're right. Why is it important that she's a blood drinking pedophile? How does that sort of match up with the trilateral commission? I don't I don't, I don't see the connection there. Why is that a necessary feature? I do want to jump in to say that. I do not believe in QAnon conspiracy theories, but I... I Too late for the disclaimer now. Too late now. But wait, that makes it look like Charles and I do. Right. What are you saying? (laughs) Being the only one here who doesn't believe in QAnon. uh, Let me just say, in defense of our QAnon listeners, that there is a reason for this conspiracy theory. There is something that it's explaining. And it's explaining the antipathy towards Trump. So the reason that this blood-drinking, pedophilic, sex-trafficking cabal of deep state actors are interested in bringing down Trump, that's what the QAnon conspiracy theory was trying to explain. Where is all this antipathy towards Trump coming from? And they found a lot of targets for that theory. One is an imagined kind of fantastical target, which is this cabal that we're talking about. But it was also the coastal elites. It was the queers. It was the blacks. It was women who want to have abortions. (laughs) It was intellectuals. So, okay, the deep state part of it, I I can wrap my head around. Like, I, I get why that is explanatory. The pedophilia, I can wrap my head around because that's a way to get people to buy in because we all have to protect the children. And, you know, every internet law and so on is hung on the back of, oh, but the children, we have to protect the children. So I get that part. (laughs) It's the pizza parlor and the blood drinking (laughs) that I don't quite get. Okay, so the pizza parlor is related to the pedophilia and the sex trafficking, right? Because that's what was going on, allegedly, in the back of the pizza parlor. The blood drinking, I agree with you. Like, that's that's just 
extra. <laughs> that that's like an old-fashioned anti-Semitic blood libel. Um, right, right. Well, yeah. So now you've brought in the anti-Semitism, but it also is like another feature to really consolidate the hatred for this group of people. The more yeah. despicable characteristics that you can assign to them the easier it is to maintain the antagonism and the hatred for them. So if you believe they drink blood, then you believe they're capable of anything. This is a group of people who are completely beyond any sort of normative social behavior. Yeah, and I think it's important that we also talk about the effects of buying into this Q universe. Because I actually have friends whose families have broken apart because of this. You know, that they have family members who believe in QAnon and it's impossible for them to communicate anymore. I'm thinking of one friend in particular who said, I honestly cannot have a conversation with my father anymore. He just doesn't live in the same world that I do. And because it's been so politically charged and because it eventually manifested in real violence and, you know, the January 6th insurrection, it's really dangerous. <laughs> I was trying to think about the people who are, for lack of a better term, susceptible to, to QAnon specifically, but conspiracy thinking in general. And I wonder, is it attached to a trauma? Are people grasping and looking for this huge, all-encompassing explanation because they're trying to resolve something? They're trying to heal some wound. They're trying to navigate some hurt, some pain. And I say that because, yes, Trump initiates and this becomes QAnon moment to shine, but I really feel like this dribbles in from a lot of obviously the sort of the 9-11 conspiracy theorizing, a lot of the fear and trauma that happens around the crash of the housing market, 2007, 2008. And I really think for me, a flashpoint is the election of Barack Obama. And I think that is a trauma. And the birther. Hey, and, the, and the birther. So all of this gets wrapped up. And I think 9-11, housing crash, and just any cheap sci-fi movie, oh my God, there's a black man as president. It's all going to shit. The world is ending. And I think that's what people are navigating. And I think QAnon is just an extension. It's an evolution of that, an expansion of that. Yeah, it's like the fairy tale about the boy who puts his finger in the hole of the wall that's leaking to keep the wall from falling down. Conspiracy theories do seem to serve that function. They're plugging this hole without the plug, it, the world would fall apart. I mean, not to make this entirely about QAnon, but what's interesting to me about QAnon is that it overlaps so many groups who since 2016 have been just like whining constantly about the misery of their lives so that, you know, there's the tech angle, like it, it comes out of 4chan and then 8chan. And so there is a, a, a pretty big overlap between a certain segment of the tech community and a certain kind of animus against the coastal elites, I think against gays and lesbians and queer culture in general, against African-Americans and black culture. Immigrants. And so Oh, immigrants also, yeah. And then that kind of gets hooked up with a little bit of the old Rothschilds conspiracy, you know, like it's the Trilateral Commission and they're running this whole show. And and then I, I wonder if the pedophilia doesn't hook up a little bit with the incel aggression that kind of emerged at roughly the same time as QAnon. Yeah, I mean, I think that is entirely possible. I, I do want to come back to what you started with 
which is that this particular conspiracy theory, the QAnon conspiracy theory, originated on 4chan, then moved to 8chan, et cetera. So it's an internet conspiracy theory. And I want to talk just a little bit about the internet and how the internet enables conspiracy theories. So I did not know this until just a few days ago, but the earliest recorded conspiracy theories roughly correspond with the invention of the printing press. Mm. So late 1400s, early 1500s. And part of the explanation for why these conspiracy theories spread so quickly and so effectively is because people could read. And I think that that is part of why conspiracy theories spread so quickly and so effectively now. uh, I think the difference now, and maybe this is not a difference, but it seems like it is, is that on the internet, the topography of truth and falsity is completely flat. Everything could be true on the internet. And if you get within a certain corner of the internet where there is this feedback loop and this constant confirmation and affirmation of a certain constellation of truths, like you see on QAnon or Facebook or, you know, anything else, that, you know, I can't remember who said this, but any lie repeated often enough gains the ring of truth, right? So I do think that it's important to talk about how it is that people first of all, get exposed to these kinds of theories, but second of all, come to believe them as legitimately true. I think that this is important because it separates, for example, conspiracy theories from myths, which people might believe have a kind of poetic truth to them or allegorical truth to them, but they don't believe are literally true. And conspiracy theories where people believe that the measure that they're using for judging the veracity of the conspiracy theory is the same measure that science uses or logic uses. I'm wondering, is there a conspiracy theory to be had around the QAnon conspiracy theory? Namely yes, that, there like, is. Like, who is Q? Well, right. Okay. Right. That's one thing. But also, what I wonder is a couple of things. One is that, as far as I know, Lee, the origin of your quote was Goebbels, And what he said is (laughs) he pointed to the bigness of the lie. Right. Right. Big lie. And so you you could lie big. And if you repeat it often enough, people will start to believe it, which could go some way to answer my original question. Like, this seems like whack shit. You know, why do people believe it? Well, if it's repeated often enough, they start to believe it. And then part of that is also it strangely becomes more believable the bigger it is, because then you start thinking, well, who really would make this up? That Mm. seems so crazy. It can't be Mm -hmm. made up. And so then I start wondering, like, how many people at this origin of this, like Q themselves or others, how many of them actually believe this? Or is it just fun to see this picked up and be believed by others? Well, the grift part of it is an important question. Those who are, you know, able to monetize off of this, those who are able to clearly gain political power off of this or cultural influence. So that's part of it. So I wonder if it's a question of you have tiers where you have those who understand a certain type of vulnerability among core believers who can recognize their fear and and their paranoia and who are now able to shear the sheep as is necessary and who are now constructing this sort of monetizable fantasy. Yeah, that's a really good point and is especially true of QAnon. 
One of the interesting ancillary phenomenons of QAnon is that all of these legit scammers have jumped onto the train. So wellness influencers, just straight up political hacks, you know, they've jumped onto this train. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. You know, the economy is going to collapse. Buy gold. And I'm right. like, you don't have to buy gold. Just read Marx. He'll tell you that, the, you know, this isn't some big secret that the economy is going to go through these ups and downs. Yeah, I mean, replace gold with cryptocurrency, and that's absolutely true in terms of this universe of believers. I think that this is an important point because what we see in QAnon, and I don't know, have either of you seen the HBO documentary? I can't remember what it was called, like Behind Q. It was a documentary where they're basically trying to find out who Q is. I watched it, and I don't know, maybe this is conspiratorial on my part, but I'm pretty convinced by the documentary that the kid who currently runs 8chan is Q. And he more or less admits it in the documentary, or at least he started Q. I mean, Q is now its own beast. It generates its own. It, I don't know. What do you like? I don't, I don't even know the kind of organic analog here, but it like generates its own food to keep itself alive. Right. But this kid who runs HN, I wish I could remember his name. It's pretty clear that he ran it you know, for the lulls, as the kids would say, yeah. right? And it became its own thing. It obviously, as Charles rightly pointed out, was monetizable. And the horses are out of the barn. There's no stopping this beast now. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson, the doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation. So I have a friend, T. Nguyen, who is a professor of philosophy at Utah University, who wrote an article that got a lot of traction in the popular press last year, where he talked about the difference between what he calls epistemic bubbles and echo chambers. So he says, all of us live in one or another echo chamber. And he described an echo chamber as a community of people who feed back affirmation and confirmation to each other. He says this is different from an epistemic bubble, which he thinks is a characteristic of cults. Because in an epistemic bubble, it's not just that there's this feedback loop of affirmation and confirmation, but there's also built in an active distrust of anyone outside the bubble. You know, there are problems with existing in an echo chamber, but presumably you could say to someone, you're just listening to people who believe what you believe, listen to this, and someone could entertain because they don't, by default, distrust anyone outside the echo chamber. It's just that there's just echoes in the chamber. 
They could listen to it and their minds could be changed. But in a cult or in an epistemic bubble, that possibility is eliminated because already built in is a distrust of anything that would disconfirm the core beliefs inside the bubble. That seems to me to be also descriptive of conspiracy theorists and really worries me because it it means there's no hope for getting people out of it. I, I haven't read the essay. And so, I mean, it seems to me like it can't be a strict dichotomy so that within a bubble, there could be also an echo chamber effect and vice versa. It seems as if from within Let's take a conspiracy like QAnon or something related to the Kennedy assassination, that in these, there are tacitly, at least, agreed upon rules for what counts as evidence and truth and a claim that would be truthful. Therefore, we're in an epistemic bubble. But then there's also an echo chamber because whatever you say is fed back to you and and that becomes pleasing. I, I feel like often with my friends on the left, that there is a kind of also epistemic bubble. I'm not sure it's a conspiracy theory, but it does seem to be like an epistemic bubble such that certain claims can't even be recognized as claims, let alone adjudicated as to their truth or falsity. So again, I'm borrowing T. Nguyen's explanation here. But I think what Nguyen would say is that the important difference between an epistemic bubble and a echo chamber has to do with trust. What's built into a epistemic bubble is a distrust of anyone outside the bubble. And he does not think that that's a characteristic of an echo chamber. So that it is possible that if you were existing in an echo chamber, that your mind could be changed by someone outside that echo chamber, even by the logic that your echo chamber might affirm. You know, so someone could come in, for example, and say, it just doesn't make any sense for you to say that the white working class's economic distress is not part of what's been happening in the rights resistance over the last 10 years. Yes, I get it that you live in this echo chamber that's going to say it's just about racism and sexism and homophobia, but it's also about, you know, you could understand and see, yes, that yes that's also true, because you don't already have built in a distrust of that. I think that Nguyen's argument is that in a cult, in an epistemic bubble, it is built in not to believe anything anyone outside says. Sure. That even if it makes sense to you, even if it is appealing to your own logic, they cannot be trusted. And so in that sense, I do think that there is something conspiratorial about Maybe that maybe I want to say the opposite. There's something cultish about conspiracy theorists. Well, it sounds like, based on what you're saying about T. Wynn's piece, it sounds like the echo chamber relies upon a particular set or organization of relationships. Whereas I'm thinking that conspiracy theories function as, for lack of a better term, like a mind virus. Like there's hmm. actually so it and, and what you're describing in terms of the built-in defense against any outside view is like an antibody. And I feel like that this thinking, you know, I'm clearly not someone in neurobiology, but it feels like it actually begins to shape and alter the fundamental way in which people's minds work and think. And I think people can start creating their own sort of antibodies. They start finding ways and justifications for resisting any new information, marginalizing any ideas that could disrupt that course of thinking. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think that that's what makes it all the more worrisome because then the only strategy is 
you have to get people before they get into the cults, before they get into the conspiracy theory. You have to inoculate people against conspiracy theories in advance because once they're in, there's no arguing with them. There's no getting them out. Right, because a lot of the language now in terms of people who are doing this work and thinking about what this means post-Trump or whatever, they're using the language that we have to deprogram these people. To pull Which them. is hilarious because, of course, they think we're all sheep. Well, exactly, right? Sheeple. Don't <laughs> yeah. you know sheeple? But yeah, so <laughs> so, so there's the, the question of, A, we have to deprogram people, and B, and this is probably a conversation for another time, but how do you inoculate people against that, which is how do you encourage critical thought? How do you encourage and teach people to be able to ask questions, search for evidence, look for justifications, recognize when an epistemic bubble is being created around them? You know, is that a role of public education? How do you foster that within households? Is it the responsibility of elected officials to engage in a type of discourse where you expose the public to that way of thinking in your public pronouncements? But my problem is I'm really pessimistic about the potential of teaching critical thinking to actually bring about critical thinking. And I think we're starting to get some empirical evidence from folks who do critical thinking that maybe it doesn't take. And that's Nguyen's argument too, right? I mean, this is part of his articulation of what an epistemic bubble is, is that it involves this mistrust of anybody who might come in to heal, to correct, which is what someone who's like, but let me show you the evidence. Let me show you how critical thinking operates, et cetera, would do. The conspiracy theorists would automatically mistrust that person. So Nguyen says the only way to get someone out of an epistemic bubble, weirdly, is to first build a relationship of trust with them. Now, that's where I lose the thread a little bit. Not lose the thread in terms of understanding his argument. I, I say, unfortunately, I unfortunately think he's right. It's unfortunate because, let's be honest, I don't want to build a relationship of trust with QAnon people that I know. If there's a guy that lives on my street that believes that Democrats are blood-drinking pedophilic sex traffickers and that Black people are trying to revise history and that queers are trying to destroy marriages and whatever, and the only way to convince him otherwise is to first befriend him, that seems super erogatory to me. I don't feel like I have an obligation to do that. Now, I know that if somebody doesn't do it, then we're all going to have to deal with the consequences. But that's where I think Wynn's argument is dead on right, but really complicated to execute if you're trying to think about corrective strategies. But to be fair, I, Charles' point, I thought, was that's why we got to catch it early. Right. So before, before you're in the conspiracy, before you're in the cult, could we do some critical thinking training there? And that's where I might disagree with you, Rick, about the uselessness of critical theory. I do think that if we could teach people earlier, if people by the time they were in high school actually had a solid critical thinking skill set, rather than being taught how to take tests for the first 18 years of their lives or how to game tests for the first 18 years of our lives, then we'd have a chance, right? Because once people are out in the world and informed as subjects, yeah, I agree with you then, it's probably too late. I, I thought you were going here earlier, Lee. Part of the problem with that is that, so the kids go home and then hear from their parents that this critical thinking is just liberal elite talk. It's cover talk for 
the queers are destroying marriage. And, you know, you had two other examples and now I lost track of them. Democrats are eating babies. Black people are trying to rewrite history. Oh, yeah. Black people are trying to rewrite it. Right. And critical thinking is just. Don't tell anybody we're doing that. Shh. Keep that quiet. (laughs) <laughs> Keep that quiet. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But Rick. I mean, I mean, I get the concern. And yes, it is true that there will still be kids who go home from school and their parents are like, what is that liberal nonsense that they're teaching you in the schools or in the colleges or whatever? But haven't we seen over the last several generations that a lot of progress has been made exactly this way? Having children be in integrated schools, having schools that don't allow certain kinds of manifest falsehoods to be presented as truths. Even if you go home and your parents are like, what's that craziness they're teaching you at school? You're in a world where more people take it to be true. I mean, here's an example that I like to use sometimes. There are people who still in their echo chambers, in their homes, white people who will use the N-word. But over the course of the last 50 years, even frothing out the mouth racist, no, you're not supposed to say that in public. I mean, pushed hard enough, a racist will pull out the N-bomb. But kids know you can't say that. And they grew up in a world where it's understood we don't say that in public. And yes, that doesn't solve racism, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't and your, and your cat was like, oh, yes, it like, does. <laughs> oh, no, it doesn't. Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> and that was right into the microphone, too. <laughs> totally was. Sorry about that. <laughs> Who let that cat in the damn hotel? She's like, let's talk about speciesism. <laughs> uh, I think cats are totally conspiracy theorists. Oh, are you <laughs> look how they look at you. They know something going on behind, behind the curtain. Yeah. So kids grow up in school knowing that they can't say the N-word. Yes, it doesn't you know, solve racism, but it makes incremental changes that eventually manifest as much larger social structural changes. No, no, right? Because there's the point that you can't legislate or you can't regulate people's beliefs, their ideas. but you, Hearts and minds. Their hearts, you know, but you can regulate their behaviors. <laughs> And we want to hear from you. If you've got feedback, suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, we encourage you to visit www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page, where we often solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to hear yourself on HBS, you can always email us a less than two minutes audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we may use it. And if it's not, we'll definitely send you our Venmo handles so that you can virtually buy us a drink. Now, back to the conversation. I want to get to the idea that one can actually begin to cultivate the sensibility and the consciousness where you don't even begin to fall into certain types of belief systems. So I have a a 14-year-old son, and in his junior high school English classes, they're doing research. He has to apply what they call a crap test to the information (laughs) they're going to use to support their argument. And the crap test is... How does it smell? Right, how does it smell? (laughs) Right, it's, it's a... It's a more vulgar form of the sniff test. (laughs) (laughs) But it's currency, 
its relevance, its authority, its accuracy, and its purpose. And these are the points that you should apply when you're engaging information, when you're analyzing it, when you're considering whether or not it's valuable to your argument. So I think there's a way by which we can instill into students a, a, a way to critically engage the information because that they have to, right? Because part of the challenge I have with kids is that my kids are on YouTube all the time and they come across these videos and these weird theories. And if they don't have that sensibility, then they're just going to accept that as true because there's the authority of technology behind whoever is speaking. Maybe it's slick production or maybe it's really highly developed logical inconsistencies. I don't know, but I, I think we have to think very seriously about that because I'd much rather engage this issue at the beginning than to have to go through some cult-like deprogramming of the 74, 75 million people that voted for Trump. So th that is really interesting because the centrality in that, or maybe it isn't central, and maybe in, in those, I forget how many there were, Charles, five criteria, that authority is there. And I'm wondering... Is that not in many ways the difference between what I would call a conspiracy and where they refer to me as one of the sheeple because of this question of authority, right? So what authorities do you trust? And, you know, my family, half of them during the pandemic would say, oh, it turns out that it's hospitals problems because they didn't have reverse pressurized rooms, and that would have solved the pandemic from the beginning. And so I'm like, huh, that seems a little weird. And it turns out, yes, reverse pressure rooms do help because the germs don't go out, everything comes back in. But hospitals did have it. And and I, I said, well, you know, look, I read this article. And then the question is, where? Well, this was in the New York Times. Well, you can't trust the New York Times. Well, then once we start having this question of authority, trusting the authority, don't some of those other pillars start to crumble? Then I can't trust its currency. I can't trust its, you know, so on. Another interesting phenomenon is that if you choose the wrong authority to trust, then it weirdly starts to pervert the trust you have in legitimate authorities. So I have an example of this. My university is one of t only two universities in the state that this year is going to be requiring vaccines for faculty, students, and staff. I teach at a Catholic university, and part of the reason that our university made that decision is because we're a LaSallean university. We feel like we have a moral obligation, not only to our campus community, but to the community surrounding us to do this. And I think it's absolutely the right decision. I am extremely proud of our president for making that decision. However, of course, we have to allow for medical and religious exemptions. Weirdly, I understand that several students and maybe even some faculty and staff have applied for religious exemptions who are Catholics, despite the fact that the Pope has been crystal clear that it is the moral obligation of every Catholic to get the vaccine and that the vaccines that a lot of these hoaxers and QAnon conspiracy theorists are complaining the most about are the exact vaccines that are being distributed in Vatican City to the entire population, to all the priests and the cardinals and the brothers and the sisters, etc. So it is really strange to me that... These people who you would think, what other, you know, if you're Catholic, what other authority comes along that trumps the Pope? But here, I think that you're exactly right, 
Rick, that it's the dead center of crap. It's the authority right. <laughs> that is really what you have to sniff first. Right. Well, here's a question. So I, I think about the conversation at the beginning of the, the, the podcast where we were talking about how the past 60 years, there's been an amazing erosion of trust within the government. Now, the irony is a lot of that erosion of the trust in the government comes from the left wing, right? Because you see the various protests that are taking place, the social movements, you see the investigations, the real questioning of the bourgeois power facade that the U.S. government presented and the most of the society accepted. So I wonder if that erosion of trust within the government, which really comes from the critiques, the necessary critiques that the left wing and various social activists and movements bring about, is what opened up the door for this much more wild and these really fantastical questions about what is really happening in terms of power and its relationship to the population. Well, to me, this harkens back to one of my rants this season, Nixon's silent majority speech. I I think we don't appreciate the way in which, I don't want to say the speech itself was a game changer, but it named the fact that the game had already changed. Yeah. And, And once you say, oh, it's a majority, and I know it's a majority. And if you say, well, how do you know? Well, it's hard to tell because they're silent. And it just is a really nice conspiracy theory. And the minority who hold this position will look around and say, oh, I didn't realize I was in the majority. And there begins now an erosion in a kind of shared, let's say, discernment of truth. And here, maybe I've been too influenced by American pragmatism, but that requires a shared discernment. And I think what conspiracies do is they get right in there and make it impossible to discern truth together. I think that I am not suspicious of the motivations for people to believe in conspiracy theories for the most part. I think that I'm largely convinced that the motivation to believe in a conspiracy theory is almost always a desire to make the world ordered and intelligible, to belong to a community, or to ease some sense of anguish and absurdity. Those, to me, are legitimate desires and are satisfied in many ways. This is not the best way to satisfy those desires. I think that what worries me, and this is getting back to Charles's point, that our strategy really has to be a kind of inoculation strategy, right? Like, let's get to people before they start satisfying those desires for community and for order and for intelligibility with bad authorities, right? With crap. Let's get to people before then. But I'm not sure that I'm convinced that all conspiracy theories are bad or harmful. No, no, no. That's because I was thinking based on the course of American history, there are people who really should be knee deep in conspiracy theorizing, right? Mm -hmm. Black people should be like, oh, hell yeah. There's always something happening behind the curtains and it's Mm -hmm. coming for me. But I want to think about If there's a distinction between, obviously, conspiracies, real conspiracies, conspiracy thinking, because I think we have to recognize that things get manipulated. That's a real fact. But to have the consciousness that transforms any set of fact or any event into a conspiracy is really the deep, deep problem I think that we're all trying to to address. And I'm always wrestling with the distinction between that because I don't want to say... Well, no, everything is above board and things are always as they appear to be because that's not true. But I'm really afraid of falling into the trap 
by trying to make sure that I'm being critical. And that's really the interesting part. Conspiracy theorists think they're being critical, but not falling into the trap of being overly critical Why fall into like, what's the name of that movie Mel Gibson was in? It's called Conspiracy Theory, right? Oh, yeah, with, yeah. With Julia yeah. Roberts, I think, was, was the, the actress with him. So I think that's an important distinction. Organizations, institutions clearly attempt to order things to their benefit because that's the housing crash of 2007, 2008. That's, that's a conspiracy. But how do you recognize conspiracies and not fall into this sort of intellectual rabbit hole? Yeah, that's such an important distinction, Charles. I, I had never really thought to make that distinction, but there definitely is a difference between believing in a conspiracy theory and conspiratorial thinking. Thank you. Right? Like, Thank wh- you. like the second does seem more pathological. You know what I'm saying? Like, it does seem more like a psychopathology. It, you know, it's like if you're the person coming up with the conspiracy theories, there's something different that you're doing than the person who believes what you're saying. And I want to say this because I always think about this, that this is why I hate conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorizing. Because as opposed to being the, a way of gaining empowerment, because we've said that, right? People want agency. People want the ability to construct an intelligible world, to transform the world. So they think it's a form of empowerment. But I think if you're a conspiracy um, theorist, if you're into conspiracy thinking, then really what you're saying is there are forces out there that are way smarter than me, that are almost absolute in their power, that are almost godlike in their ability to manipulate and construct the events of human history. And to me, that sort of really takes away your sense of empowerment. That takes away your agency and that takes away your sense of your ability to actually have an effect upon your world. So that's one of the reasons why I I hate conspiracy theories. And I also hate them because it's just such an insult to me as a philosopher because it's an infinite regress. Yeah. Right. There's no ground of truth that you can get to because there's always another feature, another factor. There's that antibody that can always be applied and you're always moving and you never come to any sort of concrecity. Yeah, I I think there's a way in which conspiracy theories have their own built in immunity, but they also therefore suffer from a kind of autoimmune disease. And but I, I wanted to go back, Charles, to a point you made earlier that I think How would I put this? If you ask me, what can I, Rick Lee, do to bring down capitalism? The answer is nothing, right? I I can't by myself just overthrow capitalism and bring it down. And so I do feel powerless. But if I could tell myself, oh, but the Rothschilds are running the whole show, that's why I can't do anything. I strangely feel a little bit better about my own impotence to affect any kind of change. I agree. And I also think that kind of contrary to what Charles was just saying, that there is an exercise of agency in being the one who figured it out, Mm. Mm. right? Like seeing through the veil. I mean, in, in broad strokes, I agree with what Charles was saying that buying into conspiracy theories does remove one's active agency in the world. But there is that sense that I think you see in every person who believes in a conspiracy theory, like, look how smart I am. I can see what, you know, you stupid sheep. Yeah, but that's kind of a false, isn't that a false consciousness? I can't get past the idea that the belief in this abstract order, these beings above the clouds who control everything, I can't get past the fact that what you're really saying is it's an exhaustion. Like, fuck it. I just, I got nothing. I, how do I get out of this? How do I think my, like, I'm in this epistemic bubble. You can't think yourself out of it. 
and there's no action, there's no event, there's no agency that will allow you to get out of the circumstance that you find yourself in if they're just that amazing. But but isn't there like a, a kind of old-fashioned consciousness-raising activity that could be done? Like if I'm within the QAnon conspiracy or something, the one thing I can do, and I'm with Lee, like look how smart I am. I figured out what all you fuckers can't do because your PhDs are getting in the way and you're, they made you dumb, PH dumb. And so, is that a, hold on, is that a thing? Are people saying that? I'm totally using I just that. Made I hope it's a thing. Oh my God, you have to trademark that. It's a that. thing now, Liz. You really have to copyright that. That's brilliant, PH dumb. Wait, I had one last episode that I was supposed to trademark. Oh, middle okay. academies. Oh, that's yes, right. Oh, you're academies. good at this. <laughs> okay, so now I'm with Lee. Like, that is a form of gathering my own agency is to say, I've put all these pieces together and I've figured it out. And now the next thing I can do is share it and raise everyone's consciousness. Because once we all know about the blood drinking pedophiles in the Democratic Party and in the deep state, then it'll all come collapsing down. Or then we can storm the Capitol. Yeah. Or then we, yeah, yeah, nice. So it, yeah, so there's still agency there, right? It's just that we're currently the silent majority. Once we get enough of us, and remember also, we're stockpiling guns while we do this. Once there's enough of us, we can take it back. Yeah. And just to be clear, I, I said nice in response to Lee saying we could storm the Capitol. I meant her point was nice, not that storming the Capitol was nice. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking Billy Crystal from Princess Bride. Have fun storming the Capitol. <laughs> but at the same time, it, let's say if I were the evil genius, if I were a corrupt ruler, the first thing I would do is create a conspiracy theory to feed to the masses. And by that conspiracy theory, I can manipulate them. I can push them. I can pull them. I can get them to do my bidding. Because in a sense... I mean, if we go back to the HBO documentary, which I actually had started watching, this one kid whose name we can't remember has got millions of people dangling on a string. So, yeah, they have action and movement and they have effect upon the world. But that agency, that independent sort of proactivity is not there. They're being pushed and they're being pulled. So it's interesting, Charles, what you just said made me suddenly realize maybe this is nothing. Let me, I'm, I'm going to say it out loud and let's see if it's something. Critical theorists in the Frankfurt School would say that precisely, Charles said, if I were to be a ruler, I would invent a conspiracy theory. This is exactly why they always co-opt the shamans, the priests, and, and religion is because that's the original conspiracy theory. Like the divine right of kings is the original conspiracy theory. And then notice all things that follow from that is if you don't buy in, then you're a heretic. You're the one who's now responsible for the fact that we have a plague or the crops won't grow. And so I, th I think you open my eyes to the at least structurally religious center of even the QAnon's conspiracy. No, I think you're on to something. I, I completely uh, agree with it. I just think that what, what gets sold is false agency. What gets sold is false knowledge. What gets sold is a hmm. false critical perspective. And we spoke earlier about the people who are monetizing this, the people who are generating this, 
And in a weird sense, it's an amazing way to weaken people's real critical possibility, people's real possibility mm. for agency, and people's real ability to create the order and intelligibility to the world that they want. I like that term, false agency, because it still retains some agency. It reminds me of that phrase that Franz Fanon used in Black Skin, White Masks, where he talks about the duped and duping right. whites. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that seems to me, like duped and duping, seems to me to be a good description of people in epistemic bubbles, people in cult conspiracy theorists. <laughs> Once every episode, as a public service to Hotel Bar Sessions regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick-fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations. A random fact. According to the 1516 Bavarian Reinheitsgebot, that is a beer purity law, only water, barley, and hops are included as the approved ingredients for beer. Today's random fact is 17th century philosopher Baruch Spinoza died at the age of 44, possibly from silicosis as a result of breathing in glass dust from the lenses that he ground. Here's a random fact. Getting new equipment to the space station used to take months or even years, but thanks to 3D printing, NASA can now basically email tools to astronauts. All right, you guys, I am going to pose you the question that I'm sure all of our listeners want to know, which is, are there any conspiracy theories that you believe in? Charles, let's get to you first. No, there are no conspiracy theories that I believe in. I just believe in conspiracies. I think Which is, of course, exactly what a conspiracy theorist would say. <laughs> He's like, hey, sheeple. <laughs> hey, sheeple. There were never weapons of mass destruction. I mean, but yeah, so, but you're, you're right. That's what a conspiracy theorist would say. I believe, I believe in actual conspiracies happening in the world. So what, what is the one that you believe is an actual conspiracy that somebody else might think is suspect? Oh, that it was not a mistake. It was not ignorance, but it was a, a conscientious effort on the part of the George um, Bush administration to go into Iraq. And I think that was, I think 9-11 was just a great excuse for them to do it. It was already, right, it, they just needed something to set off what their intentions were. Yeah. I think yeah. Blair was a major player in that as well. Yeah, yeah. They had decided to do that come hell or high water. Yeah. Right? And 9-11 gave them the, the perfect opportunity. Yeah. What about you, Rick? Well, so I, I was thinking about it ever since you asked Charles the question. And I guess... I think that I, I, I tend to think more structurally, and I think that structures do a lot of the work that conspiracies do for conspiracy theorists. And so, like, for example, I don't think the leaders of major industries and the biggest banks ever have to get together and meet and talk about how to achieve their interests because the structure already does that for them. And look how yeah. inefficient that would be to like have a meeting and have <laughs> to figure this out. And so I tend to think that in many ways, what people think is individual agency is actually more structural social agency. And I could give a, a pretty clear example of this. I remember when 
the Senate Judiciary Committee was talking to Jeff Sessions when he was nominated to be Trump's attorney general. And there were these claims that he was a racist. And Lindsey Graham said to him, Senator, are you a racist in your heart? And as soon as he said that, I remember thinking, you know, I frankly don't much care where he's a racist. <laughs> yeah, I think that when people say, I don't have a racist bone in my body, yeah. I'm like, well, there's a lot of things in your bodies that are not bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. My spleen, my spleen, my spleen hates black people to its very core. <laughs> I'm 100% racist tendons, but no bones. <laughs> well, I, I, I hear what Rick is saying. I, I think the policy is a conspiracy. Yeah. Law, the laws are the conspiracy. Right. So you right. You don't have to get together and say, let's do this, let's do that. We're just going to set up these organizations that protect the interests of a particular group of people by right. definition. And then that's it. Which is why some of these state legislatures who have been passing these incredible restrictions on voting access and voting rights. Like for me, the shocking part is they said the thing out loud that you don't got to say out loud because the right. structure does it for you. Right. Well, I kind of do believe something that is conspiratorial that does involve actual sit-down meetings, which is that I believe that the NCAA is ruining everything about education. I actually do think the NCAA sits down with college presidents, sits down with testing boards, and changes the landscape of higher education and the monetization of higher education in the United States, sits down with like college ranking newspapers and stuff like that. So I think the NCAA, like maybe next to FIFA, is the most corrupt non-state organization in the world. So And the Supreme Court just agreed with you. Oh, yeah, completely. That's just a completely unfounded, but, you know, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence for that belief. But hey, you guys, it turns out that our favorite bartender, Frangelica, is telling us that it is last call again. She's sick of hearing our sheeple talk <laughs> and she is ready to go home. So next time, Rick is back in the hot seat. Rick, what are we going to be talking about next time? We're going to be talking about the white working class and... I'll tell a little anecdote to give you all a sense of my in on this. Back in 2016, in the summer, my brother, who is a pipe fitter and was a union official for a while and so on, not a Trump supporter, said to me, Trump is going to win. And I'm like, no, look, all the polls are indicating otherwise. And he said, you... That's some PH dumb shit right there. <laughs> you and your polls, or you and your numbers. Right. <laughs> How's that baby blood? <laughs> you liberal elite. Well, I mean, he basically did say that I was unable to hear the complaints, let's say, to use a kind of neutral term, the complaints of the white working class. And I, I think... That came to bite us with a vengeance. But I have a problem on the other side, and that is I don't want to make bullshit legitimate. And and so I think to talk through this category, is it meaningful? Do we have to care about it? And so on. That's what we're going to talk about next time. All right. So I am looking forward to that. And you guys, I will catch you on the flip side. All right. Bye. 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 <laughs>